That at the end of the day, this is going to be about a judgment whether the political process that led to the enactment of this legislation is going to be respected by the Supreme Court or not. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a somewhat overcast Southern California. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is in Denver, Colorado on some business. And filling in for him today is attorney David Frank. He's the senior news reporter for Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. And welcome to the show, David. Oh, Craig, thank you very much for uh, having me on. We got rain here, too, so don't uh, don't feel bad on the, on the left coast. No worries. Well, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And as you know, David... Frank writes for the Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. And we'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com forward slash law and Clio, a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, under today's program, there's been a storm of controversy and additional fixes to the health care bill. President Obama finally signed the highly contested health care bill into law for the second time which completes the health care reform package. The signing of the bill has angered many in Congress, namely the, in the Republican Party, and has left the general public scratching their heads with a fear of the unknown. Now, there's no question that the reaction to the signing has, has sparked a, a really loud protest. There have been threats, political attacks against members of Congress, and, and we're, we're talking about something that crosses the aisle. And from a legal perspective, it's been kind of interesting that I believe we're now up to 14 states that have filed suit that, that essentially are challenging the constitutionality of this, uh, this controversial statute. The laws are being, most of the laws are being filed by uh, various attorney generals across the state, and there's also now talk about some uh, private citizens filing lawsuits seeking to, to challenge the, the constitutionality of, of, of what's happening. Well, David, today's show is going to focus on these recent health care legal challenges, uh, state lawsuits, as you mentioned, questioning whether the new law is constitutional and reaction from the general public. Our first guest today is a returning guest, Lanny Davis. He's a partner in the law firm of McDermott, Will & Emery in Washington, D.C. Lanny is the former special counsel to President Clinton from 1996 to 1998. He's also served as a member of President George W. Bush's Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board in 2005 through 2006. And he's the author of the book, Scandal, How Gotcha Politics is Destroying America. You can also find Lanny's column at thehill.com. Welcome again to Lawyer to Lawyer, Lanny Davis. Thank you very much. Nice to be on. And our next guest is David Rifkin. David is a partner in the Washington office of Baker Hostetler. He's also co-chairman of the Center for Law and Counterterrorism at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a visiting fellow at the Nixon Center, and a contributing editor of the National Review magazine. Before returning to the private sector in 1993, uh, Mr. Rifkin served in a variety of legal and policy positions in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. Attorney Rifkin has signed on as outside counsel to serve several state attorney generals who want the legislation that we're talking about today overturned in court. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, David Rifkin. Pleasure to be with you. 
Well, Lanny and David, let's first start about and talk about the state lawsuits. Um, what, what's the basis for the challenge? What are they using as a, and what kind of states are we seeing? Are we seeing Republican attorneys general, or is this across the aisle? Well, I'm going to rely on uh, my, my brother Rifkin to uh, elaborate on the reasons uh, under the Constitution that these laws can be overturned. I have a hard time uh, seeing the validity of the arguments, but I'm sure that David will make the best of what I think is a weak constitutional argument. The Commerce Clause for many, many years uh, has included the concept that for uh, the good of interstate commerce across uh, America, the federal government preemption clause, which allows federal law to dominate uh, state laws, uh, can be utilized uh, in the name of interstate commerce. And there has been a lot of debate among constitutional scholars that the trend of the cases broadened the commerce clause way beyond the intent of the framers. And I'm sure that will be an argument uh, distinguished counsel for the attorneys general will make. But I believe uh, most of the precedents in challenging Commerce Clause cases, uh, even in conservative-oriented Supreme Courts such as this one, have not been successful, and would just further say that uh, when I consider the um, mandatory nature of the Social Security tax that requires everybody to make a contribution that they don't benefit from until they're of age and can get Social Security or the mandatory nature of automobile insurance in every state that doesn't give a driver the option uh, of self-insuring because he's never had an accident, but instead has to buy insurance at premium rates that are really uh, more about uh, unsafe drivers than a driver with an impeccable record, could be challenged on the ground of uh, the federal government shouldn't be mandating my personal decision to buy automobile insurance, But those mandates have always been justified as uh, in both the state's uh, police power to impose, as well as if there was a federal government statute requiring every driver to have automobile insurance, it would be a similar argument under the Commerce Clause. If I could ask, I mean, and I'll I'll, I'll throw it out to the floor, it's, it's it's very unusual to see legal analysts to you know, be in agreement on anything. But if you, if you look at sort of the initial reaction to this lawsuit, it seems that most constitutional scholars, most people that are following this from a, a, um, a legal perspective, you know, are pretty doubtful that this is going to succeed. Are you surprised that that's been the reaction? And, and I suppose, David, what would you say to those that um, are you know, expressing that kind of skepticism about this lawsuit? Well, let me let me say a couple of things. I, I'd like to tackle the question he, he answered first, but as to the as to the reaction from the legal academe, uh, I hate to put it this way, but the legal academe is 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 fairly, uh, shall we say, um, uh, doctrinally pure in this issue. Uh, most of uh, the law professors are quite liberal, and of course, it's become liberal dogma that there are no meaningful limitations on uh, part of the federal government. Government to uh, to do good under the rubric of a commerce clause or uh, or, or a tax and spend clause. Uh, don't take my word for it. Stuart Taylor, who is one of the most uh, respected legal commentators, and who, by the way, uh, uh, in an excellent column uh, he, he did in this uh, for National Journal, he runs a regular column there. Um, in the end of the day, believes that we would lose. 
but he says it's a very close question, and he has nothing but the scorn for the legal academia. It acts as if uh, this is all somehow silly. But, but but let me say this as to uh, the two other issues. I, I have not checked the partisan affiliations for every attorney general. It's not what lawyers do when you have clients asking you to represent them. But I'm pretty sure that out of original uh, set of uh, 13 attorney uh, attorneys general, at least two, possibly three, are Democrats. And uh, other states are going to sign uh, up in the in the days and weeks ahead. So um, to me, the fact that uh, so many uh, attorneys general on both sides of the aisle uh, have filed a facial challenge to his statute literally within a few hours of being enacted attests to how seriously uh, they are concerned about the constitutional issues involved. As to the constitutional issues involved, Commerce Clause, uh, the easiest way to answer it is in two ways. A, there is Supreme Court jurisprudence that squarely supports what we're doing. But the most useful way to start is to point out sort of at the 60,000 feet above the battlefield, if you actually look at the Constitution, and not the framers' intentions that may not be captured by the language, but the actual language of a Constitution. One thing is eminently clear. The federal government is the government of limited and enumerated powers. I don't know of any serious scholar who disagrees with this level of generality. That point has been made by all the framers, Madison, in a particularly compelling fashion. And if Commerce Clause covers everything that has, quote, an economic footprint, then Commerce Clause is infinitely capacious. The notion that a federal government is a government of limited enumerated powers and, and, and general police powers are reserved to the states goes out the window. The vertical separation of powers goes out the window. The uh, the dual sovereignty system, which is the same way to say as vertical separation of powers, goes out the window. And these, by the way, are not some quaint 18th century concepts. We live in an age where everybody is excited about the Bill of Rights. And just a brief reminder, the Bill of Rights is, is a secondary, important, but secondary bulwark uh, in protecting individual liberty. It's a set of negatives uh, regarding what the government cannot do. The primary protection of, of individual liberty is the diffusion of power, both horizontally among the free branches of the federal government and vertically uh, between the states and the federal government. So the way this statute works does more to threaten individual liberty in this country. And I'm, I'm, I'm being deliberately dramatic here than anything done in the 200 plus years of our republic. So this is a statute that, if upheld, would, in effect, have tremendously bad implications for individual liberty. Because there's no, there is no meaningful limiting factor here. If the federal government can save it, you ought to purchase uh, insurance, medical insurance. Not any insurance, but the way we prescribe it. Not catastrophic coverage with some self-insurance, not a lien package, but, you know, Every whistle and bell the way we want. There's no meaningful limiting principle for federal government to come back to you and they're required to purchase health club memberships and new cars every few years and fruits and veggies and basically compel every single uh, purchasing decision you have as a consumer. And I can tell you I spent you know, several months last year debating this with every law school professor there is, uh, from Yale to Harvard to UCLA, all very, very smart people. Not a single one of them could come up with a meaningful limiting principle, except to say, well, this is really important to what the government is trying to do here with health insurance. Yeah, commanding you to buy new cars every few years is really, really important to government's ability to maintain a healthy automobile industry in this country, you know? So,
So you don't need to use taxpayers' dollars for clunkers. You can use your own dollars for clunkers as compelled by government. This is not the kind of constitutional architecture under which we can live. And again, that's the, the broadest formulation of the problem. There's case law, which I can cite chapter and verse, and a quite recent one that imposes meaningful limitations on the Commerce Clause in cases like Lopez and and uh, and Morrison and, and the commandeering aspects of his bill in New York versus United States and Prince. But these are details. The most important one is, is the one I just articulated. What, uh, David, you've signed on, I guess, as outside counsel to several state attorneys general. Um, tell us about what your role is on that. Well, um, this is, um, again, we are delighted and indeed honored to have been asked. Uh, this is a set of very sophisticated clients. Uh, every state has uh, large uh, offices with lots of experienced litigators, many of whom actually had appellate and Supreme Court experience. Most states have solicitor generals, and I can tell you, I mean, spent a number of years in the federal government that they're every bit as good and experienced as any DOJ attorneys I had privilege to work with. So our role really is to uh, classic role of outside counsel of sophisticated uh, you know, legal department, uh, in this case, multiple departments never signed to uh, help uh, uh, draft a complaint, which has been drafted to work on uh, uh, briefs to participate uh, in uh, strategic decisions uh, regarding uh, how to move this uh, case forward, uh, participate in all arguments, et cetera, et cetera. But as I said there, we're talking about an excellent set of lawyers on, on the other side. Lenny, if I, if I could ask, uh, in terms of potential legal problems that might be created in those states where, say, the governor doesn't necessarily support the suit, but the attorney general does. Is there any any sort of legal problem that you might foresee uh, happening in those states? Well, if it's an elected attorney general, I don't think the governor is going to be able to affect uh, anything the attorney general does in his judgment as a matter of law. If it's a appointed attorney general, the governor can fire them, but I don't know that many states other than the state of Tennessee, but I've lost track of the different systems. Um, you know, I think this does, though, uh, relate to the point I was going to make, which is about politics. Uh, it's actually a constitutional uh, doctrine that the Supreme Court doesn't make political judgments or interfere in the political process, even getting down to dictating what kind of party primaries uh, parties should have. In this case, uh, it's interesting to me that sometimes conservatives love to say we should give deference to uh, legislatures that represent uh, democratic policy judgments. Uh, and, and then on other occasions, they say, uh, no, we shouldn't. In this case, the national policy judgment that requiring uh, everybody to either pay for a health insurance policy or pay uh, some kind of a fee in lieu of paying for the health insurance policy has a grounding in national policy, which is that in order to um, require insurance companies to insure everyone, including those with pre-existing conditions, you can't leave their economic base as only sick and old people. You have to require the economic base to include healthy people. Uh, this particular health care legislation is actually quite a conservative piece of legislation, hold your breath, David, but uh, I do think that the decision to reject a public option and to keep this system entirely in the private sector uh, was an example of President Obama standing up to his base and going with a private insurance-based system. 
once you decide to go with the private sector, the national policy decision of this Congress, uh, which would be litigated as a policy decision of a, an elected legislative branch, was that you needed to have a universal requirement, individual mandate, in order to achieve the policy goals of allowing people to continue their insurance, even if members of their family reach an insurance policy limit or have pre-existing conditions and lose their jobs and can't get new insurance. That's a policy decision made in the political process. And while the Commerce Clause uh, jurisprudence supports giving Congress the power to enforce that because it has an impact on interstate commerce, I sort of agree with David that at the end of the day, this is going to be about a judgment whether the political process that led to the enactment of this legislation is going to be respected by the Supreme Court or not. You might recall, David, and I'd love to hear how you would have addressed this in the 1930s, uh, minimum wage laws for children were overturned by uh, conservative Supreme Court before Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack it unsuccessfully on the grounds that this was a state police power function and that uh, there was a de minimis impact on interstate commerce as to what wage you paid a particular child in a particular state. Uh, that line of cases has long since been overturned and minimum wage laws at the national level as a policy judgment, what's in the best interest under the general welfare clause of the Constitution and several other clauses has been upheld. So there are many instances where Congress makes a policy judgment that individuals must do something because collectively it's in the national interest. I think that's what argument would be made in support of the health care bill. Well, uh, a couple of things. Uh, first, as far as the uh, uh, capacity of different uh, uh, state attorneys general to, to sue, I agree with Lenny that uh, I certainly cannot think of any state constitution where uh, an attorney general is elected statewide and is an independent litigation authority. Uh, most states don't have a unitary executive model. <laughs> we have at the federal government level, where indeed the president can fire attorney general or anybody else for that matter. Um, and they're not doing his bidding or her bidding relative to a course of litigation. Plus, I, I would find it enormously strange uh, and difficult to even conceive that the federal court or the Department of Justice, for that matter, would get on the question of a given attorney general under the state constitution has uh, or does not have uh, ability to do that. Um, but Lenny brought, uh, I think, an, an interesting point, which frequently gets banded about in, in debates about who are true uh, uh, believers in judicial restraint. Uh, look, let me put it this way. Nobody disagrees the judgments made by, uh, because in this case, we're going to federal judiciary seeking to get them to strike down the uh, product of combined judgment by two political branches, that the judgments of political branches, uh, all of them are entitled to considerable deference. Having said that, I don't know of any uh, constitutional lawyer, for that matter, you know, folks who are, are defending this uh, statute who would disagree with a proposition and the political branches are acting extra-constitutionally. No matter, by the way, how compelling, Lenny, their policy goals are, uh, that the federal courts have both a right and an obligation to step in, provided their appropriate uh, you know, standing requirements are being met in the cases 
uh, did not fit in the, in the fairly narrow ambit of a political question doctrine, uh, you have to uh, you have to uh, <laughs> deference uh, or not. Uh, you have to call it as you see it. The, the courts have a final say in our constitutional system. And again, what's ironic to me is I'm vividly remember because I was involved as, as an amicus and probably most of the major post 9/11 cases. How our friends from ACLU and and and, and Legal Academe have been quite vociferous in arguing that no matter how compelling the reason that the Bush administration, and in several instances, and this, you know, for example, in the context of a statute called Military Commissions Act, no matter how compelling their policy arguments were, that the first task of any government is to protect public safety, we're trying to prevent another al-Qaeda attack. People were talking with tears in their eyes about the equally essential need to protect our constitutional values, to protect our constitutional litigation. At the risk of being somewhat flippant, I would say to you that if protecting our constitutional architecture is sufficient to trump public safety, it's certainly sufficient to be taken into account when you're talking about public health. But look, the fundamental problem here is this. Every activity by a human being has an economic footprint. I would stipulate to that, particularly in the aggregate. And Lenny is right. Uh, the modern Commerce Clause jurisprudence allows uh, intrastate activities, even intrastate activities that individually have very tiny impact, like growing wheat for personal consumption in a bathtub, which is an, an, a subject uh, uh, fact, the key fact in, in, in Rice, Gonzalez v. Rice, which is the most recent uh, Commerce Clause case, or in the far more venerable uh, Wicked versus Fulbert, and we're talking about a farmer growing wheat for his own consumption. Uh, individual interstate activities, even if there is no profit motive involved, in the aggregate can have sufficient impact on interstate commerce, can be swept in. Nobody's arguing with that. Nobody's trying to relitigate New Deal cases. The problem is this. This is not an economic activity. This is not even an activity at all. We're talking about an individual judgment not to purchase a particular good or service. To say that it can be swept in because it's not an activity, it certainly is not an activity you regulate. And remember, again, in the past, if you look at these cases, we're talking about interstate activity that is identical to an interstate activity that you regulate. So in case of a farmer in Wickard, he is growing wheat. The statute and issue regulates production and sales of wheat. In the case of Gonzalez de Rice, the person is growing, albeit in a bathtub, albeit for personal consumption, wheat, marijuana, to put it less colloquially. So it's the same thing as growing, you know, in, in some large plantation-like setting in a national forest where they grow this stuff, marijuana, uh, in for the interstate market. Here, by contrast, we have an individual decision by a person not to use, not to purchase medical insurance. And yes, it has an economic footprint, but it is not the same activity that you are regulating. It is not the same as purchasing insurance. It's not about setting conditions of insurance, rates, et cetera, et cetera. So to say that you can sweep things in because they have an impact literally makes Commerce Clause infinitely capacious, destroys the very key element of our constitutional architecture. And by the way, I would urge your listeners to go reread Justice Kennedy not uh, a typical member of this alleged conservative majority on the Supreme Court, concurring opinion in Lopez versus Reich, uh, excuse me, uh, in, in Lopez, which is a 1995 case having to do with uh, striking down in a 5-4 decision, the so-called uh, Gun-Free Zone School Act, where he's 
says very clearly that there must be meaningful limitations on the Commerce Clause. And on Delaney's approach, there are none. Because no decision you can make as a human being in the 21st century doesn't have some economic footprint. A decision to drive, not to drive. To procreate, not to procreate. To eat healthy, not to eat healthy. To drink, not to drink. Everybody has some economic footprints. And in the aggregate, they can be quite substantial. With significant vote, they're not the same activities that you're regulating in the interstate market. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking more about health care law and what it means for Americans and its health care system. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined by attorney Lanny Davis, partner in the law firm of McDermott, Will & Emery in Washington, D.C., and David Rivkin, Jr., who is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Baker Hotstetler. We're talking about the recent legal challenges to new health care law signed by President Obama. And Lanny, I understand you've uh, got to leave us shortly. So why don't you, uh, if you could, please give us your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. I really do want to say that I'm glad I'm not going to be up against David Rifkin in a Supreme Court argument. He's that, he's that good. And I also want to say on his behalf that for half of his last commentary about weed in a bathtub or weed uh, in various contexts, I was hoping he was using the word wheat with a T rather than with a D, which is what he and I would deny ever having tried in the 60s, or at least uh, I never inhaled, let's put it 
that way. But I was actually going to I was actually going to ask you to t- at that point uh, assert your rights <laughs> under the Fifth Amendment. But in any case, I understood at the very end that he was talking about the the kind that you don't inhale. Uh, look, I grant David uh, the validity of his position as a serious argument that it appears difficult to draw boundaries around the Commerce Clause, and at times, uh, especially with a good lawyer like David. Uh, who is very good at the Socratic method in asking tough questions. I hate to be a, a law student in David's class. Where do you draw the line ends up being a very subjective answer, which David would have a, a lot of fun with pointing out the subjectivity of the line. That is undoubtedly true over years and years of jurisprudence. The only thing one can say in response is five to four is not a big margin. And there were four Supreme Court justices, and I've been on the Supreme Court, who have been five to four, uh, validating the Texas law that banning uh, guns in the neighborhood of a school is a policy judgment made by the United States Congress uh, that certainly has an impact on interstate commerce, an impact on general welfare. There are lots of constitutional grounds that that law could have been upheld on. But most importantly, uh, David would look to the Constitution to overrule a legislative branch elected by the people. I'm a little bit more conservative than David. I would give deference to the legislative branch and say, if we don't like this law, then in the next election, throw the bums out and change the law. But let's not have willy-nilly the same Supreme Court making arbitrary judgments about where the Commerce Clause begins and ends. It's okay to do it on weed, but it's not okay to do it on national health care. It's okay to do it on child labor, but it's not okay to do it on guns around schools. These judgments over the years have been pretty arbitrary. Ultimately, I trust the legislative branch, because I'm a good conservative, uh, rather than an unelected Supreme Court that has five to four majorities where by one vote, you're making some kind of a judgment where the Commerce Clause begins and ends. And boy, I'll bet you I provoked David Rifkin about five times in that statement. Good. Well, before before David gets on in response to that, Lana, can we get your contact information for our listeners before you drop off? Uh, sure. I am um, on email at ldavis at m, as in Mary, w-e uh, dot com. Great. Well, thanks very much for being on the show. All right. And I, listen, I truly uh, thank you for inviting me to be on with Professor Rifkin. He's <laughs> as tough as I predicted he would be. Uh, a lady is... is, is uh, yeah infinitely gracious as well as extremely able so i feel rather churlish uh disagreeing uh, with him after being uh softening up in this way but but let me say a couple of things first of all again um uh, perhaps i'm i'm naive here but i think that venerating which is to say you know taking sufficiently seriously constitution is something more than uh, of an arcane document something that actually meaningfully constrains the activities of, of political branches meaningfully constrains the exercise of a democratic franchise because let's remember why is that the constitution is a result of a democratic judgment by the prior generations that was sufficiently compelling as to unless and until amended is to bind and constrain democratic choices of today's generation generations to come so we're not sort of you know allowing somebody from outside to override the democratic choices here but again what's remarkable to me, and maybe because I'm so interested in, in national security law, 
is that if you made this argument during the Bush era about things like warrantless wiretapping or Guantanamo-related issues, detention, interrogations, you would have been greeted with howls of, of, of outrage. How dare you uh, warp our constitutional fabric, you know, warp our constitutional architecture? But look, uh, in the end of the day, this is an enormously important set of constitutional issues that goes to the very heart of, of how we organize ourselves as, as, as a country, as, as body polity. Actually, this is not a situation where the Constitution is squarely on our side. The case law does not. Both Lopez, uh, as well as Morrison, as well as, as Gonzalez v. Reich, very recent cases, 90s and, and, uh, and, and, and even more recent, for the court to actually uphold this exercise of power by the two political branches would would dispense fundamentally inconsistent with what it said in most cases, and I invite the listeners to actually read them for themselves, particularly, as I said, Justice Kennedy's concurrence, which I believe reflects his personal heartfelt views about the importance of, of maintaining vertical separation of powers. And, and I think it would be remarkably difficult for a court to do. And very briefly, quite aside from the Commerce Clause issues, the statute is chock-a-block uh, full with uh, instances of a federal government, quote, commandeering state officials and resources, which is a term of art. There's a whole line of cases, including, as I mentioned, New York versus United States and Prince, which says that the federal government cannot compel state officials and state resources to be utilized in enforcing federal law. Because remember, who do you think is going to be running insurance exchanges and administering uh, Medicaid and making sure that insurance companies uh, are going to be subjected to a myriad new regulations? It's not going to be HHS. It's going to be states. States would be required to hire thousands and thousands of, of, of new employees to do this. They would be required to spend billions of dollars in Medicaid funds, which particularly onerous for states that have balanced budget requirements. So, again, this statute, both in terms of individual mandate, the taxing mechanism associated with it, as well, which goes to the question of what it's trying to accomplish, as well as the co-optation and conscription of state officials and resources, which goes to the question of how it's being supposed to be implemented, uh, is utterly insupportable under both the relevant case law and the Constitution. And it will be a tough decision, uh, I'm sure, because nobody likes to strike down lightly uh, something that was done by the two political branches. But in this case, there's no choice. So I do believe we're going to prevail. Um, in terms of reaching me, uh, my email at uh, my law firm is drivkin, D-R-I-V-K-I-N, at bakerlaw.com. Great. Well, David, thank you for being on the show and uh, as well for David and uh, David Frank. That does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, for our listeners, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And a very special thanks to our guests for being with us today. Remember, you can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes as well. And for our listeners, remember, you can get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts, including some Lawyer to Lawyer podcasts, at the westlegaledcenter.com. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.